to our Common Ground podcast, Beyond Aporia. I'm your host, Brian Smith, and with us today is New York Times bestselling author and scholar of Britain's role in the Second World War, Lynn Olson. Your most recent book, Madame Foucault's Secret War, has been called one of the great stories of the French resistance, and former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, who was a Hauenstein Center fellow, has referred to your work as our era's foremost chronicler of World War II politics and diplomacy. Lynn, thank you so much for being here. Well, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. World War II, I want to start by saying, is definitely a topic that there's a great deal of research about. Um, many people have written a lot of books on it. And I'm just wondering, as you finished up your career in journalism and, and were thinking about what you wanted to write books on, what was it that you saw was missing in terms of the scholarly work on World War II that made you really want to focus your attention on that? Well, I wish it had been as uh, well thought out as you seem to indicate <laughs> on my part. It was not. I, I uh, When I stopped being a journalist, I knew I wanted to write books, but I had mm -hmm. really no idea what I wanted to write about. And the first book that I wrote, I wrote it with my husband, Stan Cloud, mm -hmm. uh, was called The Murrow Boys. It was all about Edward R. Murrow, the great CBS uh, journalist, and the uh, correspondence he hired to create CBS News before and after, during and uh, after World War II. Um, we both were huge admirers of, of Murrow. We were both former journalists. And, uh, but a couple of really good biographies had already been written about him, so we mm -hmm. decided to look at these other guys, these guys who were hired by him. And in the course of the book, if, if you know anything about Murrow, you know that he made his name in London during the war. Uh, he reported from the rooftops of London about the Blitz, the Battle of Britain, mm -hmm. and in the, over the course of the war, he became probably the America's most well-known journalist, wartime journalist, wartime correspondent, uh, and also the most the, the most popular. Basically, he and his correspondents created broadcast journalism, and within a year, radio had taken over newspapers as, as the country's number one source of news. Um, so he made his name in London, and as a result, uh, we spent a lot of time doing research about Britain and London in the early days of, of World War II, because that's when he was there. And I just fell in love with the period and with the place. Uh, it, I mean, there was, it was an incredibly exciting, dramatic time. Britain uh, in 1940 was the last country standing against mm -hmm. Hitler in Europe. Um, it was the last hope of freedom, and it was on the verge of defeat. It was a tiny little island country, uh, and it was facing the, the greatest military force in, in history up to that point. And so it was just just, just a, a great story, and I kept finding various facets of the war connected with Britain that I didn't think had been properly explored. And um, so one led to another. And so as a result of the eight books I've written, seven of them have been about the war. Not all really focused entirely on Britain, but Britain has played a role in, in every single book that I've written. It, I find it interesting the way you say, you know, of course that Britain stood alone, obviously Czechoslovakia, Poland, the Netherlands, Belgium, France, Norway had all fallen. But um, I think saying it was a, a very tiny island, it was at the time one of the largest empires yes, in the yeah, world. Yeah, that's absolutely true. It, 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 was a, a, a it had been a very powerful country. By the time of World War II, it, it was losing a lot of its power, its, its colonial domain had shrunk a bit. Uh, it, it did not have the uh, 
economic and military uh, uh, power that it that it once had, but it still was. It still was the leading uh, European democracy. Mm -hmm. um, militarily, France was supposed to be the leading um, Western power, um, but as we found out, that that wasn't true. So, but they, the two of them, Britain and France, were um, the the allies that everybody thought could hold out against Hitler when when Germany invaded France uh, during the Blitzkrieg in, in May and June 1940, that proved to be totally wrong. I mean, right. uh, France folded not as fast as Poland, but, but very quickly. And so Britain, with its small army, um, its fairly small air force, better air force, its navy, uh, was left uh, you know, to take on this, this behemoth um, that Hitler had created. I think it would be difficult to fold quite as fast as Poland folded in the war the two weeks and... Well, actually, it took longer than... Uh, Poland has gotten kind of a bad rap. Um, it, there's no question that, that there was... It could not, it could not withstand uh, the German invasion, but it did last longer than two weeks. Um, it, in fact, lasted uh, for well over a month. I mean, it, it was clear early on that it, that it probably would be defeated, but, mm -hmm. but the Poles held out as long as they could. The problem is that, that Britain and France had declared war against Germany mm -hmm. over Poland. They had promised the Poles they would come to their aid, right. um, and uh, they didn't. Um, <laughs> they, they knew they were going to when they made that promise. Um, they, they actually thought that the promise which was made uh, early in 1939 would be enough to, to make Hitler think twice. It did not make Hitler think twice. And so they were then, you know, forced, put into the position where they had to declare war against Germany, but did nothing to help the Poles. It's so odd to me that they would think that that would be a deterrent when, you know, they thought the exact same thing about Czechoslovakia. Absolutely. And so it had already been proven to be a completely false assumption that there simply wasn't right. a deterrent that would prevent Hitler from doing what he wanted, you know, in the Sudetenland. And then when they simply marched into the rest of Czechoslovakia, and everybody kind of went, well, that's over with now at least. Right. So right. It's, it's very odd that they would have thought that, well, this time it will work. It didn't last time, but this time it will work. It's, it's really interesting to, to look back the hindsight of history, you know, and you say, my God. They should have known. Well, yes, they should have. And there were a lot of people in Britain, including Winston Churchill, who knew that this was not going to last. Um, but for whatever reason, uh, and there were a lot of reasons, Neville Chamberlain just had made up his mind that, that, that he and he alone knew how to handle Hitler, and that Hitler, regardless of the fact that he kept breaking his promises, that the next time, you know, that would, that would, be, the, that would be the time that Chamberlain would have the upper hand. Of course, that did prove not to be true. Right. So you're here with the center today to talk about the role, really, of Britain as sort of a refuge for um, its former allies in a time when they had fallen. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Czechoslovakia was gone, um, Poland, France, the Netherlands, Belgium, Norway, and Italy, who, you know, during the Munich conference, people had thought might actually be a supportive ally and that, you know, we might actually be able to work and Mussolini could control Hitler, obviously turned out not to be the case. Uh, why, why did all of these people from the defeated nations choose Britain as their refuge when it was a time when possibly a, a neutral country might have been seen as a safer bet? Obviously, neutral countries weren't being bombed and under threat of invasion. Why, why do you think 
they chose Britain as opposed to a Switzerland or a Sweden. Well, well they couldn't have done anything. I mean, if they went to a neutral country, um, they would be trapped. Uh, there, there's nothing they they could have done to to, uh, to continue the war. And and the the interesting thing, and and quite frankly, the overlooked thing about these countries is that they, they did continue the war. Mm-hmm. They were occupied, but their governments, most of the governments, decided to leave to fight on. That was true of Norway. That was true of the Netherlands, Belgium, eventually, and, s- and several other countries. France, of course, its official government did capitulate. The Vichy government. The Vichy government did capitulate, and they did collaborate with the Nazis, but Charles de Gaulle, the self-proclaimed leader of the Free French uh, forces, of which there were probably a dozen uh, when, <laughs> when he went to London in June 1940, he went there and built up his own uh, force. Um, so they saw Britain, they didn't really want to go to, to, to England uh, because England had not stood up for them right. before the war, but that was their last chance. Um, and the reason it was their last chance is that Winston Churchill became prime minister mm-hmm. in May 1940, replacing the appeasement-minded Neville Chamberlain, and Churchill was just absolutely the opposite. He made it very clear that Britain was going to fight on regardless of the odds. and. Uh, but he needed help. He needed allies. Uh, the British people don't like allies for the most part. They never have. I mean, they like standing alone, you know, as we're seeing now with Brexit. But Winston Churchill knew they needed, for Britain to survive, they needed allies. To, for Britain to survive long term, they needed the U.S. to get into the war. But the U.S. was not in the war. The U.S. was um, isolationist, was staying out of the war. So he invited the leaders of all these occupied countries to come to London uh, and join his join the ranks of, of countries fighting against Germany. And they said yes. So it wasn't just the governments that came in. It was um, military forces from a lot of these countries. Uh, it was their resources. It was their gold. It was their ships. So the point that I made in, in one of my books, Lost Hope Island, was that these countries actually did not only a little bit, but they, they contributed significantly to the Allied victory, um, uh, you know, a, a fact that is not very well known today. Yeah. There were a couple points that I want to touch on in what you said. I'll start with the first one, which is appeasement. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's very interesting that appeasement in the uh, mid-1930s was seen as a very positive thing. A lot of members of parliament were very much in mm-hmm. favor. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Chamberlain went to meet Hitler at Berchtesgaden, he received, you know, three cheers and everyone was very hopeful he'd come back with peace. And I think today now the word appeasement is seen as a very negative word, largely in part due to the efforts of Mr. Chamberlain and Deladier of France. Is there any room in the world today for the concept of appeasement? Is what happened with Hitler and the dictators like Mussolini, has that completely eliminated any chance of peace through appeasement? Well, it, it, the, as you say, appeasement has taken on a, a, a meaning that is very derogatory. So if you're using the word appeasement, no. I mean, the, the, the way it is now translated. I mean, you know, basically conciliating somebody or a country just because you hope they will, you know, do as you want. That was proven to be a, a false idea uh, in the 30s. And it, I think it's a, a false idea now. The question of getting along, of negotiating, uh, that's a totally different, you know, question. And yes, of course, there should be negotiation and right. compromise. 
Um, but, but basically, appeasement, the way we understand it, because of what Chamberlain uh, did, it was just giving, 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 you know, with the hope that, that somehow um, you'll, you'll get something from it. And, and that certainly didn't happen. And then what else you mentioned is sort of the word that's on everybody's mind nowadays, which is Brexit. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's an odd juxtaposition that the way Britain in your book Last Hope Island was seen as the last chance for Europe, mm -hmm. the savior of mm -hmm. Europe. It's so interesting now that we're in a situation in which they're choosing or appear to be choosing from the referendum to eliminate or sort of fracture an organization which was created in the hopes of preventing another world war um, to bring together all these mm -hmm. European countries that have always had such incredibly conflicting interests. What, what, is, what, is really, what has changed? Or is it sort of the same mindset that Britain had you know, before the war when they were looking you know, at appeasement and simply remaining uninvolved, not going to bat for Czechoslovakia or Austria? Um, I think it's, it's the latter. I think, I mean, Britain has always been a special case in terms of Europe. It's never really thought of itself as with Europe, above Europe. I mean, it, it's an island. And, and regardless of the fact that only like 30 miles of the English Channel separate it from France, um, that fact of being an island meant, has meant for them for centuries. They were not invaded. Mm -hmm. You know, um, they, they didn't know what it was like to be occupied. They didn't know what it was like to have somebody, another country on the border ready to cross over. Um, and that fact has profoundly affected the British mentality, I think. Um, and uh, it's, until I started doing research on this, I didn't quite understand how deep that is. It mm -hmm. really is very deep. They feel different. They, that's, you know, actually England is, is probably, uh, um, London certainly, if not the most diverse, one of the most diverse major cities in the world. Oh, yeah. I mean, you go there and, and you know, you feel like you're in a little United Nations. Yeah, it's not a homogenous population. It's not a homogenous population, but outside London, it is quite homogenous. But there, there was a mindset back then, before the war, that um, we don't want anything to do with what's going on over there. Um, and when, in fact, France fell, and they were left alone. One of the thing, the remarkable things is that many Brits thought this is great. We don't have any allies. <laughs> no more allies you to know, worry in, about. Including the King of England, George VI, wrote to his mother saying, "Oh, I'm so happy we have no more allies to have to pamper." Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, they're standing on the brink, and they're and you know they're they're just right, they're, congratulating they're themselves. They have no allies. Through, yeah. Exactly. Um, so that is very very strong, and I, and I think. The British as a whole welcomed the um, Europeans um, because they were sharing the dangers together and they worked together. Um, it, it, it was a long, difficult process, this uh, alliance, this partnership with, with Occupied Europe, but it did, it was successful. But then when it was over, I mean, one of the ironic things is, quite frankly, Winston Churchill was the godfather of the European Union. Mm -hmm. England was kind of the cradle of the European Union because all those European leaders had come to England and worked together and socialized together and got to know each other and started talking and saying, if this, if Europe is going to survive and continue to hopefully thrive after the war, we're gonna have to band together. We're gonna have to work together to prevent 
something like World War II from happening ever again. And so the talks began in England um, during the war uh, between European leaders. And so that really was the, the birth of the idea of the integration of Europe, uh, which continued after, obviously after the war. The, the leaders of that integration, they were, they were Europeans, they were Belgians, French, whatever, they wanted England to lead it. They right. wanted Churchill to lead it. And basically, Churchill and England said, no, you know, <laughs> we're back to being the special country. You know, right. we're, we, don't, we don't need Europe. Um, you know, we'll, ha we'll help you, but we, we don't want to be part of you. And so they eventually did join the predecessor of the European Union, but never, England was, the Brits were never really uh, fully behind it. So that has led to Brexit. And we're, you know, God knows what's gonna happen, but it's, I don't think it's gonna be pleasant for, for either the UK or for Europe or for the world. I, I, I think to a certain extent, the people in Britain do want to believe that they can be an independent, separate entity yeah. from Europe. But the fact is, because of all the trade, you know, agreements and you know borders and you know traveling between the countries, Absolutely. you know, one passport for everybody, and uh, they kept themselves out of the common currency. Who knows how they were able to do that? But it it, it seems like sort of you know shooting your your own foot off. Oh well, yeah, I, I mean you know for me, uh, studying this and for years. It, it, it was, it's just unbelievable um, that they that they voted the way they did, um, but it's not really unbelievable if you go back to and look at how, you know how Brits have seen themselves for for, for so long. Um, it, it's really unfortunate. I know we talk about how difficult sort of the alliances were. Obviously, between Britain and France, there was never really a common accord. It was always either the British dictating to the French or mm -hmm. the French disagreeing with what the British said, and that resulted in Austria and Czechoslovakia falling the way they did. In America, I know we like to think of ourselves as a very special case with mm -hmm. Britain. You know, we have the mutual history, we have you know, two wars fought against them, and yet somehow we kind of came up with this beautiful you know, friendship and alliance. But uh, that wasn't exactly the case no. during the war. It was it was a much more difficult marriage than I think a lot of people like to believe. What what made it that way? Well, alliances are, are never easy. I don't think <laughs> uh, you know you have to work really hard to first to create them and then to keep them going. And and the yes, I, I mean I love the special relationship. Yeah, every everybody holds up or many people have held it up as just the perfect example of an alliance that mm -hmm. that Britain and and America joining forces. And and uh, you know powering this great alliance along with the Soviet Union, obviously, um, and, and ending up with victory. Um, but first of all, the U.S. wasn't interested in this alliance at all until right. uh, until well into the game. I mean, Winston Churchill was desperate to get America into the war, knowing that if America didn't get into the war, that Britain probably would would fail, would probably be defeated. When it actually actually happened, it was the result of a lot of hard work, not on, hard work on the part of Churchill and, and, and Roosevelt, certainly, but a lot of hard work on the part of people, both British and, and Americans, uh, working very hard together to put that alliance together. And, and even though you, you said it, it seems um, unusual that it would, it would not, it would be difficult, and people look at it, of course it, it would work. We're, we, we're English speaking, mm -hmm. uh, we share the same beliefs, uh, we're democracies, um, you know, 
you know, we love English writers. Uh, right, they yeah. love, I don't know what they love about us, but anyway, <laughs> that, that we should be able to work together. But that, that kind of, that's, that wasn't true. I mean, we, we guess we share a common language, kind of a common uh, tradition to some extent, but we, we don't, didn't then, and don't understand the Brits, and they didn't understand us. There was a lot of tension, a lot of misunderstanding, um, it, including between Roosevelt and, and Churchill. The Brits thought that we were being, you know, we were being uh, overpowering and uh, uh, condescending to them. They thought the same way about us. It, it, it took a lot, as I said, a lot of really hard work on the part of people to um, make sure that that would succeed. Um, there are several, you know, on the, on the military level, on, you know, on, on the government level, um, th there were a lot of problems. So before I let you go, um, I know you have a very busy day today, I just want to kind of ask if the situation with Britain and Brexit and the rest of the European Union, do you think that there's a sense of danger similar to where we were, say, in 1933, 1934, as Germany begins to rearm? You know, the reoccupation of the Rhineland and sort of the, the feeling that these alliances between nations, the great post-World War I alliances between Britain and France, Italy, the Soviet Union, uh, Litvinov was desperately advocating for a relationship with Britain and they simply said, no, we don't trust the Soviet Union. Are, are, we, are we returning to that sort of tension because of Brexit, do you think? I think there's a real uh, danger um, that and that's where I go back to historical amnesia. We are 80 years away from the from the start of World War II, and and more as more and more years go, uh, you know, happen, then people think this is ancient history. They think it's ancient history now because most people, the vast majority of people, uh, in our country and, and and elsewhere, weren't alive during World War II, right. um, and they don't understand, or you know, they haven't paid attention to how catastrophic. A breakdown of world order that was, mm -hmm. uh, resulting in the in the deaths of millions of people, the destruction of countries. The um, it was it was just so insane that after the war, uh, it wasn't just Europe that decided they had to band together. It was it was this country too. America realized that it could not sit. We cannot sit over here, uh, protected by these two oceans. Mm -hmm. And, and stay out of the world. We had a role to play. And so America, for the first time, uh, joined together uh, with Britain and Europe, for example, in creating a military alliance, mm -hmm. NATO. Uh, and in, in the creation of NATO, basically, uh, US, for the first time, agreed to be a force for keeping peace in Europe. Mm -hmm. I mean, and so there was this incredible de determination in all these places, uh, including in this country, particularly in this country, and, and, and people joined together in this country. It wasn't just an alliance between US and, and the UK and the rest of Europe. It was an alliance among political parties in the United States. The Republicans joined with Democrats, um, realizing how vital it was to prevent another cataclysm like World War II uh, from happening. And so for, you know, 50 years or more, I mean, more than 50 years, there was this, this 
intensity in, in I mean, you know, there were lots of battles between the political parties, and, um, but there was this common belief uh, among, I think, the majority in both parties that in terms of, of alliances, the, and we had to keep these international alliances going. We had to work together with others. That, um, unfortunately, I think has unraveled tremendously. And I, that is, it, it concerns me a great deal. All right, well, thank you very much for coming and talking to us. This has been our Common Ground podcast, Beyond Apori. I'm Brian Smith, and I've been here with Lynn Olson. Uh, her most recent book, Madame Forgot's Secret War, is available now, and I suggest all of our listeners go pick up a copy. It's a delightful read. We've been devouring it at the center. So thank you so much for coming and talking with us today. Thank you, Brian. Beyond Aporia is a podcast brought to you by the Hauenstein Center's Common Ground Initiative at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Hauenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. I've been your host, Brian Smith. The Center is inspired by Ralph Hauenstein's life of service and leadership. For more information, visit us at gbsu.edu hc or look us up on Facebook.